Hello everyone and welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast, Broken Oars University. You can tell that it's Broken Oars University because Lewin hasn't said, Aaron, tell us who we're talking to this week on the podcast. That's right, Lewin is still locked in PGCE qualification hell, but never fear, we have an amazing guest lined up to kick off 2023 proper. We will be back within a couple of weeks. We're looking forward to talking to them next weekend and hopefully we will be able to build on that and go forward from there. It's been a bit of an interesting time for Broken Oars Podcast, having been pretty assiduous about getting something out once every fortnight and having had an amazing run of guests, we suddenly got sandbagged by life. Uh, These things happen. Lewin is busy. I am busy. Lewin is doing professional qualifications. I am doing professional qualifications. We have families to look after um, and all of the things that everyone else also goes through. So thank you very much for sticking with us. And this week I thought I would do part two of The Romantics. Everything you wanted to know about romantics, romantic poetry and romanticism, but were afraid to ask. Or everything that you didn't want to know and don't want to know. Don't worry, there is some rowing coming soon. Okay, so in part two, what we're going to do is build upon what we established in part one. So the idea that we have a period of literary history that has come to be called Romanticism. And within that period, there were a group of writers, authors, poets, poetesses who came to be called the Romantics. Now we know that these designations, these appellations, these names are generated after the event really by a process of critical mapping, historical uh, distance from the time and an ideological idealization of the social realities of the period. The romantics didn't really go around, Byron didn't go up to Wordsworth and go, are you a romantic? I'm a romantic too. We're all romantics together. The idea that there's a public, there's a manifesto. Well, there was a manifesto of sort. You have um, lyrical ballads, you have introduction to lyrical ballads, you have Biographia Literaria and things where they set out, they set out conscious aims for their poetry. But we've already seen that a lot of those conscious aims were building on or responding to the poetics and the literary mores and tropes that have that had gone before in the Augustan period with the Neoclassicals, the Pope and the Drydens of this world. Um, So to move forward, let's start getting into the poetry. Let's start getting into the ideas behind the poetry. Let's start getting into the poets. And we should get into the poets because if anybody deserves a good shoeing, it's a poet. So in the work, The Literary Absolute, uh, The Theory of Literature and German Romanticism, uh, Lucula Barth and Jean-Luc Nancy stated that romanticism is first of all a theory, which we've just said that it isn't. And they also said that it's an invention of literature, which all literature is an invention. All literature is a created thing. All literature is an artificial construct. Every literature is an invention of itself and that might seem slightly counterintuitive but unless if you just write some stuff down you've just written some stuff down but if you write some stuff down and say this is this is the new primitive this is the new primitivism or this is this is the new northeastern school or whatever then you have invented a literature which is a body of work about a body of work 
Anyway, they go on to say, most precisely, and this is the important bit, it constitutes the inaugural moment of literature as a production of its theory, and of theory that thinks of itself as literature. This is really important because the self-conscious nature of the romantic poets and their poetry we talked about the idea that they're no longer talking about the perception of nature what they're talking about is the nature of perception so they are they are engaged with what they are perceiving they are very self-conscious about how they are writing and what they are writing about and how they are constructing that writing and the forms that they are using and the content that is fitting within those forms there is self-consciousness what we would now call self-awareness or in critical literary terms self-reflexivity a artistic process or process that is self-consciously aware of its own process so we have literature as a production of its theory of literature the idea of the language of the common man and speaking about everyday things and in literature's production of a theory of literature of a theory an accompanying theory of what literature is that accompanies the actual works themselves. And they say, Le Coulobath, which is a wonderful name, and Jean-Luc Nancy, that with this gesture, the Romantics opened the critical age to which we still belong. And what you have there is a series of mutually related dovetailing statements the idea that you have you talk about what you're going to write about so you have a theory of literature then you write about it so you produce the literature that you have a theory of and the literature that you've produced either confirms or denies your theory of it so you have this idea that that these what is a nominally subjective creative process has already been objectified but in creating, in going through the creative process to produce your literature, you are generating a subject that you can then talk about. So you have a theory of literature, you produce the literature, and then that literature that you've produced either confirms or denies your theory of literature. Now Schlegel, you'll know Schlegel, wrote in the German eight, very, very competent man, defined the Romantic movement as producing, and I quote, a literature that would be great, a great thoroughly connected and organized whole that comprehended many worlds of art in its unity, but at the same time was a visionary work of art. Now this is a bold claim. Schlegel was a German Romantic. Um, he wasn't actually, you know, in the German eight. That was just my little joke and my what a little joke it was. Um, but if you actually look at the Romantic poets, they, had, they did have a theory of literature. They had ideas about how they wanted to write. But did they actually fulfill them? Well, that's an interesting question. If you look at a Byron, a Keats or a Shelley, or even um, a Wordsworth, a lot of the things that they said they were going to do, they never actually managed to complete. They're, Byron has an, has unfinished epic, has an unfinished epic. Keats and Shelley had unfinished epics. Wordsworth projected a defining work in the in the recluse. Coleridge had um, Biographia Literaria. Um, they they set out what they were going to do, but they didn't necessarily always achieve it. 
And what you have there is if you have this theory of literature that then creates a literature that then confirms or denies the theory of that literature, you have a dialectic being formed. And in the idea that they were framing what they were going to do and they never quite realized it, what you have is this dialectic being denied and dissembled into something ever more about to be. Romanticism is, if you want to go to the logical endpoint of that, it's born from the knowledge of its own desert, that it can, the theory of literature can never actually be fulfilled by the literature itself, because some of the things that are posited and projected were never actually finished and completed, so you can't see how they measure up. But also, if you have a theory of literature, the literature that you produce then confirms or denies that theory, but as we've seen, they weren't in opposition to the neoclassicals or the or the Augustans or what had gone before. They were reacting to, they were part of the same lineage, they were part of the of the evolution. So there is no end point. You never reach an end point artistically or culturally with things like this. To look at the social context of the time, it's the time of the French Revolution, as we well know, bliss it was and all of that stuff. Watson said that it was innovative poetry flourishing at the time of new political imperatives. That's the sort of thing that someone like a Watson would say. He cited Hazlitt's statement that Wordsworth poetry, and I quote, partakes of and is carried along with the revolutionary movement of our age as evidence. Um, now that's tying the kind of um, theoretical and creative impulses to what was happening socially and culturally. Now, I'm not one of those academics who says that um, literary biography is unimportant, what the author felt was unimportant, um, that the text is something for you to read, and that historical and cultural contexts simply don't matter. They do. Nothing is produced in a vacuum. If you think that the author is not important, then Try that argument next time you have a report or a, an essay or an assignment to hand in and you can walk in and say, I haven't done it because Roland Barthes said that the author is dead and it's there has to be someone creating things for us to comment upon them. They ha there has to be something happening for commentary to happen, you know. Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer don't go to an empty football field and go cracking game lads. They go, they comment upon what they see on the field. It's the same with cultural impulses. So there's a dialectic being formed by someone like Watson that the violence engendered in revolutionary impulse, which can be seen in philosophical terms as a manifestation of pure will, and the Kantian ideals of subjective autonomy that manifest itself in romantic poetry are coming together in a drive towards realization or a drive towards this idea of a resolved, unified theory and work. It doesn't work like that. It's a theme that's identified in all of the major poems of the romantic period from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by Blake to Don Juan. Um, the accessibility or other of paradise. The, the, the revolutions are all about the glorious new future. Revolutions are all about the glorious dawn. Revolutions are always, always about the coming of a new age. The romantic poetry is all about the coming of a new age. It's all about 
paradise not lost but paradise realized it's all about um, the hope for a better world and this is articulated in the poetry but as I've said it doesn't quite work like that because you you're always evolving so you never actually reach an end point where you can say and they lived happily ever after now tied to this and this is the bit that leads us to our current age of social media influencing clinical narcissism and everyone shouting look at me including me because I'm doing this and I'm asking you to listen to it the pervasive no notion that most people have about romantic poetry isn't that the drive towards paradise in, in the poetry is a mirroring of the drive towards a better age that saw the revolutions in Europe that were happening at the same time although the contexts are important and it's it's foolish to deny that they are most people come away with the the things that they learned at school about romantic poetry that it's all about emotion it's all about the eye it's all about I wandered lonely as a cloud my heart leapt up I looked and I saw it's all about how people feel it's a really important development in the idea of art as I said in the first part of this previously to the romantics art was a craft it was about craft and competence it was about commerce Michelangelo didn't paint the Sistine Chapel because he was divinely inspired he painted the Sistine Chapel because he was paid Alexander Pope Dryden they didn't knock out verses for fun although they did knock out verses for fun they wrote public commentaries on public things on public themes on public ideas and they did it for money it's this it's the same as going to a carpenter and saying I need a table I need a sonnet for my for my loved one um, it's the same as getting a builder in to do the the extension um, I need something that celebrates the glory and grandeur of God Michelangelo okay Pope whatever your name is I will go and knock out the Sistine Chapel it will cost you this much and take me this length of time after the Romantics we have this idea that art is about what you feel I feel happy I feel sad I feel up I feel down I feel angry I feel elated I feel whatever and that comes across in, in it still carries across now in books in movies in um, in the music that we listen to the music that we listen to is all about feelings and there are very very narrow range of feelings I love you I want you I don't have you I miss you I want you back she makes me feel happy he makes me feel sad that kind of thing it's all about feeling and that's where you get this idea from from the, the from the stated aims of the poetry from the theory of the poetry that it's about the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings and we have a popular image we've been to the Lake District and we, we've been up to Dove Cottage and we've, we've walked the hills we've got an idea of Wordsworth striding across the hills of the Lake District declaiming like a river in spate and he did that in fact I think most of us do I find that when I walk the dog I tend to mutter to myself it's not necessarily in blank verse but walking and processing how we feel and what we're thinking about are really you know we all know that that happens there's huge amounts of evidence that show that that movement and processing of thoughts and ideas are natural bedfellows um, but like all of that are popularly held cultural notions of things the this idea is fundamentally flawed this perception that we have is fundamentally flawed Wordsworth's definition of poetry as being 
the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings has suffered from being used as a cultural idea of what art should be. Art is about how we feel, it's about expressing our emotion. It really isn't, but we'll come to that. Uh, well, we've already touched upon it, but it, it really isn't on other levels too. The expression of emotion, if a toddler expresses that, that, that they are angry, they don't do anything but just express pure emotion, and it's inchoate, it's incommunicable in its um, in its range, in its depth, in its passion. When we actually communicate though, we use forms, we use language, we use essays, we use conversations, we use sonnets, we use odes, we use novels, we use editorial pieces. We use forms to put how we feel into packages that other people in our culture recognize and can engage with. So, the spontaneous overflow of human emotions thing. Let's get back, this is, the, this is the key quote for the Romantics. For all, good poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, and though this be true, poems to which any value can be attached were never produced on any variety of subjects, but by a man who, being possessed of more than usual organic sensibility, had also thought long and deeply. For our continued influxes of feelings are modified and directed by our thoughts. It's not about the emotion, it is about the craft that communicates the, the felt emotion. So the idea that Wordsworth is coming up with there is that the, the poet's words can only ever conjure or gesture towards approximations of what was originally felt and experienced. So the stress upon the emotional context of poetry or the, the emotional context of art is qualified by the caveat that the poet has to also think long and deeply before overflowing. It is a complex of thought and action that defines the poet's ability to express what he thinks and feels. Now, this has been taken out of context, as I've said, and it's why we now think that art is about how we feel rather than art being about craft and competence. And it's because J.S. Mill, famous critic, restated Wordsworth's methodology, producing a theory of poetry where the, the fact-value dichotomy became rooted in our cultural and critical discourse. Um, in Mill's theory, poetry had no connection with struggle or imperfection. And the complex of thought or feeling that Wordsworth is suggesting, that, that it is a... That is a that it's a it's a it's a union between the two. It is a, it is a negotiation between the two. Became rendered as a purely emotive theory. This is the emotive theory of art. Imaginative writing, in Mill's idea, will and I quote always possess some dominant feeling, so that the poetry of a poet is feeling itself, and it's not. Which is why most of us, if we're pushed, can probably remember some lines from the sonnets or we can remember a bit of an ode or we can remember something that we learned at school that has content and form but most people would be hard pushed to remember any free verse because it's just this splenetic outpour inchoate outpourings of an emotionally stunted adolescent anyone can do free verse you could do free verse right now as you're listening to this grab a pen grab a pen write down the first things that come into your head, arrange some of them in a long sentence, 
put a couple of words by themselves, end with something with an exclamation point. You've just written some free verse. Now go and write a sonnet. It's a bit harder. You actually have to think about it. To think about what you want to say, you have to think about beats to the line. You have to think about the volta. You have to think about what your payoff is. You have to think about what your setup is. You have to think about it. You have to think about what you're trying to communicate. That's the point. Wordsworth was saying you have to think about what you are trying to communicate. The idea that the romantic poetic is a, a poetry, um, the poet of a poet is feeling itself, that it's all about feeling, is that's Longinian in tone. A theory that suggests that great poetry is just a pure expression of emotion, um, that poetry implies a pact of tacit or mysterious connection between the poet and the reader, which fosters the myth of authorial intent in the process. And we know that the author isn't dead, but what they meant by a text isn't necessarily what we will take from a text. That's the important thing to remember about Roland Barthes, that and the fact that he was French. Anyway, the pact of tacit and mysterious connection between the poet and the reader, and that the, that the reader will be physically moved by the poetry that they read um, that they will feel the same emotion or they will feel an equivalent emotion to the equivalent depth. That goes back to Longinus's Treaty on the Sublime, which was published in the 3rd century Anno Domini, which was why I said that this idea of the Romantic Poetic was indulgently Longinian in tone. So, Longinus said, there are some five sources, five genuine sources of the sublime in literature, the common groundwork, as it were, of all five being a natural facility of expression without which nothing can be done. The first and most powerful is the command of full-blooded ideas. The second is the inspiration of vehement emotion. Gotta love those Romans with their vehemency. Unfortunately, Longinus was talking about a poetic tradition that isn't necessarily the Western poetic tradition. He was talking about the tradition of rhetoric and public speaking. And within that context, the rhetorical strand of Longinus's theory is treating grand emotions as the appropriate concomitant of great thoughts, that these great thoughts being conveyed through words directly express an emotion which guarantees the sublime effect of the poetry. And this posits that unless the poem, if the poem, well, this posits, this is a tenuous poetic methodology because it's saying that if the poem fil fails to deliver its payload of emotion to its intended target, it runs the risk of looking both hollow and pompous. And a lot of ret rhetoric and rhetorical flourishes are both hollow and pompous. We can see it when we watch PMQs and we watch all of the politicians whooping and gibbering like monkeys in a zoo, throwing verbal shit at each other. It bears no re reality to our lives. What they're talking about our lives, they're talking about our country, they're talking about the problems and issues that we all face, but the rhetoric, which is highly formalized, bears no reality to our lives. Um, and that's because Longinus was dealing with the rhetorical tradition. He was dealing with the idea that you are speaking in a highly stylized form to an audience that recognizes that highly stylized form. This idea that the 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 poet and the poem have to deliver a payload of, of emotion is a, an idea of poetic alchemy that that emotion just just the passion the white knuckle passion will turn the base words that you have into spiritual and emotional gold 
And this, unfortunately, is one that stuck to the Romantic era because of the work of critics like Mill and, and the like. The idea that it's all about the overflow of emotion, the power of emotion, it's about the I, it's about how I feel and about how I, I perceive. And it's not. Now, there are other factors at play. Wordsworth had an idea of utopia. We've briefly touched upon the idea that the revolutions that were happening across Europe at the time were looking at a new beginning, a new age, a new dawn, paradise envisioned, paradise found, paradise realised. And po the poetry was about realisation. It was about paradise. It was about attaining things. It was about the new dawn. It was about the new age. It was about... And we know that it wasn't because every age is always in constant evolution. It's always in constant negotiation between what has gone before and what is coming up. And that period of negotiation is what we call the present. But Wordsworth had an idea that his paradise, his utopia, is was linked to his understanding that childhood is an Edenic state. So this perception is something that his poetry we could say that his poetry might be attempting to illuminate or revive but it's underpinned and this is important because it ends up feeding into the Victorian idea of childhood and the child the Victorian obsession with little girls and their purity the Edwardian ex, uh, obsession with little boys and their vigour and their promise the idea that the vision and clarity of perception granted to the child becomes physically and symbolically blurred and less available as time and mortality take their toll. The idea that you see things more clearly as a child and as you, as you grow up, you lose that clarity. Um, and he said, there was a time when meadow, grove and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem appareled in celestial light. The glory and the freshness of a dream, it is not now as it has been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things which I have seen, I now can see no more. Now, the privileging of childhood is a fairly modern invention. Until even up to the end of the Victorian period, a lot of children were seen as essentially small adults who joined the workforce pretty quickly. Um, the idea that there is a state of childhood comes out of the Victorian and comes out of the Edwardian period. And... Wordsworth's privileging of childhood, privileging of childhood in this context, runs against the, the grain of the neoclassical perception of um, perception, the neoclassical perception of perception, and the conventions of the age. At that point, children were not beautiful, innocent, pure, and sweet. They were small adults. They were members of the workforce, and in sociological terms, they were seen as being no different to adults. Whilst Wordsworth's poetry is rich with this language of redemption, there was a time when meadow, grove and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem appareled in celestial light. The glory and the freshness of the dream, it is not now as it has been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. The healing of the soul is through its subsumation and submission to a higher force, but that's couched in terms which suggests a more secular take on what we might call Protestant introspection. He says, 
The rocks that muttered close upon our ears, black drizzling crags that spake by the wayside, as if a voice were in them. The sick sight and giddy prospect of the raving stream, the unfettered clouds and region of the heavens, tumult and peace, the darkness and the light, were all like workings of one mind, the features of the same face, blossoms upon one tree, characters of the great apocalypse, the tips, types and symbols of eternity, a first and last and midst without end. This language is a secularization of the Christian symbols of redemption, and it's symptomatic of romantic poetry's use of nature as for its symbolic and impactful value. Nature ever-changing in its diversity, unpredictable in its towering storms, unmappable in its ever-changing play of light and cloud upon numerous landscapes, is by its very slipperiness a perfect symbol to imply the existence of a larger, wider, bigger, meta-cosmic other, the mysterious philosophical absolute lying outside of the narrow visions of social and religious orthodoxies. But if you look back at that quotation that I've just given, the rocks that muttered close upon our ears, the attribution of human speech to the rocks and crags implied by the contextualization of the as if a voice were in them, as well as that the idea that they muttered, that that's an attempt to impose a linguistic order and generate a signified meaning from a landscape which otherwise defies coherent mapping. We think that our landscapes reflect ourselves, they reflect our character, they reflect our culture, they reflect our societies, but they don't. This, this, this small island in the mid-Atlantic that we're all sitting on at the moment didn't come up out of the primordial ooze with a Union Jack on it and, and an unwritten constitution and the, a, a diarchical state where you have a, a, a coterminous relationship between monarch, houses of parliament and house, house of lords within a democratic process. All of these things were inventions. What we actually do with our landscapes is we tell stories about ourselves and we tell stories about our landscapes and we map those stories onto our landscapes and then we look at them and those, sto those landscapes reflect us back at them. It's a process of overwriting, but there's nothing intrinsically there. The hill outside the house that I'm looking at is just a hill, but it's because I live here that I know what the village that I'm looking at across the valley is called and what that means in the context of the northeast of England and this particular valley which is the Derwent Valley and what that we write things we're writing thing we're writing meaning onto our world to give ourselves meaning we are reflecting we are reflecting ourselves back at ourselves a closed linguistic discourse the types and symbols of eternity there's a there's a it's implying in that line that there's a tropic nature of language signification, linguistic signification. By drawing attention to that, by drawing attention to the maneuvers of language, what you're actually doing is you are reversing the poem and the poet's objective, which is to harmonize and reintegrate humanity into nature, because you are drawing attention to the processes by which we do that. You're drawing attention to the fact that we are we are overwriting we are imposing a linguistic order on something in order to understand it to re, in order to reflect ourselves back on ourselves this particular 
chunk of Wordsworth, it moves away from the Christian symbolism and the, 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 the allegories inherent in, in that, while also borrowing its rhetorical resonance in its climactic line. Oh, first, last, admits without end, world without end, our father, world without end, amen. I mean, these are common things. It's also echoing a literary past because it's echoing Milton's description of God in Paradise Lost. Him first, him last, him midst and without end. It's impossible to think that Wordsworth would have been aware that he was echoing Milton's work in Paradise Lost. So it's, you, if we're being clever, we'd call it an intertextual reference. He's, he's making a, an allusion, he's making a reference, he's making an intertext. But he would have also been aware of the significance of the Miltonic line in the context of Paradise Lost. Um, and as an, because we know that he's making an intertext, because we know that he's making a reference, this reflexivity, even though he's implying a philosophical, theological order or other, which is plainly larger than human comprehension, the very fact that he's using language to do it in plainly recognized terms is creating a limit on what he's saying is limitless. We're getting into the realm of, well, we're well past postmodernism now and we're into cultural relativism, but it, we're talking about the way that language, as it communicates, it also contains. Okay? So he also wrote quite famously, um, Tintin Abbey, or to give it its full titan, title, lines written a few miles above Tintin Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, 13th of July, 1798. Great year, fantastic Henley, remember it well. And he said, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what they perceive. Now what you have there is the romantic idea of the primacy of perception, the nature of perception and the degree also to which the romantics held that the reality that we perceive is given significance by human attention and human creativity. So unless we actually perceive it and then we map it in the form of a poem in Wordsworth's case, um, it, it has no importance until, until we have that um, intertext, and, uh, until we have that conjoining the line, though, is a reference to Jung's Night Thoughts, which reads, and half create the wonderful, the wondrous world that they, the senses, see. So yet again, the fact that he's making a reference, the search for the larger frame than that of a single consciousness runs the risk as being re revealed as a series of consolatory strategies, where the posing of the question doesn't automatically give you the answer. He's reaching, he's gesturing towards the other, and in gesturing towards the other, the limitless other, he's, impose, he's imposing a limit on it. He's, it becomes the idea that we have a theory of literature, we write the literature to confirm or deny the theory, but in, it, never actually, it never actually reaches a, a resolve or resolution point. By contrast with Wordsworth's use of the Christian symbolism to, to give the, the concept of the, of the utopia or, or the, the, the paradisial other, where there's a rhetoric of self-transformation, Coleridge, who was off his tits a lot of the time, 
strove to balance his experience in philosophical learning and his Christianity. And it might be worth noting that Coleridge also worked as a lay preacher. Um, if you look at something like Kubla Khan, which is rich in symbolism and theology, um, the f rich enough certainly to deny a single definitive reading, the forced insertion of the deity into Shamini, the hour before sunrise, a hymn in 1802, disrupts what we might call the phenomenology of the poetic. And he says, And thou, O silent form, alone and bare, whom as I lift again my head bowed low, in adoration I again behold, and to thy summit upward from these base, sweep slowly with dim eyes suffused by tears. Great hierarch, tell thou the silent sky, and tell the stars, and tell yon rising sun, earth with her thousand voices praises God. As in the excerpt from Wordsworth Preludes, Coleridge is using the device of attributing the power of speech to nature. Earth with her thousand voices. And that's generating signified meaning. We get what he's talking about, but again he's doing it by using a, imposing a linguistic order on the otherwise incoherent earth. The landscape doesn't speak. He is suggesting that it does. And that means that the devices prey to the same failure that we've identified previously in Wordsworth's work. But while there is a lot of the fairly typical romantic poetic symbols in this poem, there's a straining nature to it that sounds feels like the declamatory voice of a preacher in a pulpit. The rhetoric depicting a mountainous earth progressing upwards towards a deity in the sky is both hierarchical and conventional. And thou, O silent form, alone and bare, whom as I lift my head bowed low, in adoration I again behold, and to thy summit upward from thy base sweep slowly with dim eyes suffused by tears, Great hierarch, tell thou the silent sky, and tell the stars, and tell yon rising sun, earth with her thousand voices praises God. If you do it in a Scots accent, you've got a fire and brimstone Presbyterian preacher denouncing from the pulpit on, on a Sunday. If we look then, contrast that with something like Shelley's Mont Blanc, it was written in 1817, it takes the same landscape and it produces a text where the mind and the landscape are, are mirroring and echoing each other in their ambiguity. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendour, where from secret springs the source of human thoughts its tribute brings, of water with sound but half its own, such as a feeble brook will oft assume, in the wild woods among the mountains lone, where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend, and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. The, the onerous, declamatory piety of Coleridge's take on the same sort of scene is absent. There is no God in Shelley's poem. Um, there is more a sophisticated analysis of perception. The mind may be a feeble brook, but it is the equal of the external landscape, and ultimately the collective unconsciousness is presented as that which gives the external landscape significance, which I've touched upon. Landscapes don't tell us anything about ourselves. We make stories up about ourselves, we impose them on the landscape, and then we see ourselves reflected back in our surroundings. That's how it works. Where Wordsworth is playing with the illusion between the coastline of the heart and the tides of the heart are echoing nature, 
Shelley's take upon perception is that it's a vortex of, of ambiguity and irresolution. It's a vortex of tension that's under constant negotiation and renegotiation. And in that sense, Shelley was smarter than his, his other romantics because he realised that paradise could never be attained, utopia could never be attained. We're always in tension. We are, we are always in evolution. Where Wordsworth and Coleridge had... Wordsworth had a measured rhetorical grandeur and Coleridge had the declamatory style of a preacher about to have a hernia. There's a metronomical sense in much of Shelley's work in, in this one, um, but if you also read things like the, the domestic minutiae of a letter to Maria Gisborne in 1820, the, the meteorology that is essentially Mont Blanc or Ode to the West Wind, um, you and the latter is appearing to revolution. There's there's an inscriptive accuracy to his representation, um, and there's a density to his language. The primary revolutionary drive towards a better world manifests itself in Shelley's poetry as a concern with depicting movement, where the object being captured is on the point of turning into something else. And he's getting the point that we never stop. We don't reach paradise. We're constantly in evolution. Maidens and youths fling their wild, sorry, maidens and youths fling their wild arms in air. As their feet twinkle, they recede and now bending within each other's atmosphere, kindle invisibly. And as they grow, glow like moths by light attracted and repelled, off to their bright destruction, come and go. With each passing stanza, the triumph of life is constructing the narrative of the rituals of human attraction and sexual consummation, down to the momentary void of life being created by the climax of the union, but as a foam after the ocean's wrath is spent upon the desert shore. It's a pretty perceptive reading also of the capacities of language and the poetic form itself to negotiate and communicate these realities. It's a concatenation of verbal energies and, da and dazzling linguistic tricks that ultimately burn out, leaving little more than the echoing ephemera of their presence, which is a metaphor for all lives. Everything that we do in a hundred years, everything that we've done in a hundred years, no one will care. It will be forgotten. There will be no lasting monuments, and even if they are, monuments are, are dead things. They're symbols on a landscape. And Shelley's getting that. It's all about the now. And then it's gone. And we're on to the next now. That the contrast between Coleridge's and Shelley's reading of the same landscape and something like Mont Blanc and Chamonix is, is it's stark, but it's pretty indisputable. Coleridge's poetry, I would suggest, and there might be some romantic rowers out there who are going, you don't know what you're talking about, Jackson. Um, it suffers when he's most clearly able to formulate and express his theological beliefs. It's a theory which is borne out by the contrast between that strange Presbyterian declamatory rhetoric of Chamonix and the rather better known Kubla Khan, where a single definitive reading is denied by the poem's inherent ambiguity and exploration of ambiguity. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, you know Alf, the alien from the American sitcom, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round and here were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incest-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. 
The poem is a slippery, onieric puzzle upon the nature of paradise. And Coleridge played with that ambiguity nature. He subtitled it A Vision in a Dream and a Fragment, and he actively promoted the idea that it was conceived in a laudanum or opium dream. And his claim, his famous claim, in a lonely farmhouse between Porlock and Linton, after reading Perch's Pilgrimage, a 17th century travel volume, who had the lines in Xanadu did Kubla Khan build a stately palace, encompassing 16 miles plain ground with a wall, wherein are fertile meadows, pleasant springs, and all sorts of beasts of chase, is essentially Coleridge ripping off someone else's work to get the imagery that's in Kubla Khan, the twice five miles section. Now he suggests that he mentally composed a poem of some two to three hundred lines himself before some nameless person from Porlock arrived, dissipated his vision, and left us with the ver the barest fragment that is picaresque in its in its extreme. Um, that might be true. It might be not. It's a it's a good story. It's a little bit like Paul McCartney saying that he wrote yesterday in a dream, but actually remembered it. The myths of art are almost as important as the as the things that art produces, to be honest. And there's a lot of mythologies around art, and this is probably another one. But that story of the poem's genesis is in itself a delightful metaphor for the ambiguity of meaning, reading and perception that the text itself gives. It is also, despite being symbolic of an imagined sybaritic romantic lifestyle, flouncy shirts, opium, long hair, romantic death by consumption. Consumption is not a good way to die. There's nothing romantic about it. Um, it's also completely untrue. He was talking bollocks, hence the idea that I've just said that the myths of art are as important as the art itself, because scholarship has showed that there's more than one draft of the poem, um, which dis disproves this idea that he dreamt it. Oh, I just dreamt it. Oh man, I just jammed it, man. Oh, how did... How did, you, how did you write Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? Oh, we just jammed, man. We just jammed. No, you didn't. You spent eight to 12 hours a day in the studio working flat out for months to produce it. Don't talk, don't talk shite, soft lad. Anyway. The poem itself is 54 lines, Kubla Khan. It's short. It's slippery. It's ambiguous. Ambiguous? Ambiguous. And you can't quite ever get to grips with what it's me with, with what it means the meaning of one line depends upon how you read the, the the line before or a line further on so it's constantly changing and that is exactly what happens when with language language is a slippery thing it is never as precise and definite as we like to think even in black and white there is linguistic slippage there is linguistic slippage so Wordsworth's projected integration of the individual mind into the larger world of nature is undermined because it constantly stresses the idea of the solitary consciousness. Coleridge's opium dream dissipates into the vulnerability of the single isolated mind by contrast. That mind is haunted by his vision and its unaccountability, the fact that he can't actually realise it. The final image of the poem conveys the concept of the poet as the incarnation of the capable and active imagination, though. This, even though they know they can't actually make paradise, they, it can't ever be paradise found, they're still trying to bring resolution to what is irresolvable. Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such deep delight twould win me with music loud and long? I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see me there, should see them there, 
and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. There's a constructed poet figure there, and it's undone by the paced tensing of the final lines, twould, would, should. These imply wistfulness, incapability, the impotence of the poet to attain the paradisial visions offered to him by his dream. And the resolution cast a tragic shadow over the visions of paradise being offered by the poem, but I think that emphasises and empowers the nature of the imagery rather than dissipates it. Now, this brings us back to the idea of Le Coulibath and, and Jean-Luc Nancy, that Romanticism was a theory of literature, and the literature that was produced was then to confirm or deny that theory. And we know that because things are always in negotiation and evolution, the paradise can never be attained. The theory is always moving on, the theory is always evolving, the culture is always evolving, the social context is always evolving. But it's suggested that a lot of the themes of romantic poetry were concerned with the idea of a paradise or attaining paradise or, or utopia or attaining a utopia. But if we know that that can never be, that, that literature can't ever fully join and perfect its attempts to gain an entry into that paradise, then those attempts can equally never be fulfilled. And that, I think, is where we go to part three, which is that this is not a failure of poetry. This is a reality of language where the, you could say, the inability to get into Eden or the Edenic fall is manifested because language always defers a final resting place. And we'll talk about that a bit more in part three and get into more of the poetry and also return shortly with some rowing. So, bye for now. <laughs>